0: The Apostle John, he writes to believers at a crucial time in history. It is a time when the darkness of one way, of God's dealings with man, was passing away. And a brand new age was being ushered in. The Gospel Age. The Gospel Age, which is spoken of it's such a glorious portentous a language as this new age of the church comes in for example revelation pictures this new church as the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to earth it describes it also in revelation as a, a new heavens and a new earth truly glorious language for this kingdom, age that we live in. The age of John then writes to fellow citizens of Zion. And the key themes we've seen so far, well, Jesus Christ is one person with two natures. He is God the Son, but incarnate. Denial of this makes someone Antichrist and denial is either confessing the error or not being a witness for Jesus Christ at all. True believers can be identified by uh, loving and obeying God, witnessing to others about Christ and having a sacrificial love for the brethren. And the other great theme we came across was that Jesus Christ is both our propitiation, that is our sacrifice, and our advocate, our representative in the very courts of heaven. Today then we're going to look at verses 6 to 12 from the 5th chapter of 1 John, verses 6 to 12. Straight away, straight away we run into this theme of water and blood. Verse 6. Jesus Christ came by water and blood. It even emphasises it by saying, not just by water, but by blood also. Now, this verse this idea of the water and the blood in 1st John has traditionally been difficult to interpret. Now, I would not have you thinking that this is something negative, that we come across something difficult in Scripture, that this is a bad thing. If only it was much clearer. Friends, if God... Wanted his word to be simply a record of something. Come down from heaven. A set of rules maybe. A set of guidelines. And he he sort of preserves that. And makes sure every member of the human race gets it. That's one way of working. But that's not how he worked. He's given us a book. And he's given us a book. He hasn't given everyone this book. And he's given us it in the form of history and poetry and theological uh, letters from one church to another. And in all this we come across things which are not so clear. You might argue that if we were closer to God and had more of his spirit we would be able to understand all these things. Well, I suspect God has done this so that we are forced to go digging in his word. Because had he written a Bible that everyone on the planet could immediately understand at first glance, there would be no work involved. And yet now, we come to verses like this and we go digging and we dig and on the way on the way to that supreme gem that we are searching for, the proper interpretation of the verse, that is. We come across other gems, if you like. And so it's through this necessary process of hard work, hard Bible study, that we are greatly blessed. How great it is after hours of study! Days, weeks even of study to make a discovery. In other words, for God to suddenly just reveal something, give you some light on the scripture. It's one of the most blessed things a Christian can experience. So we're glad. We're glad that we have to work hard. So here there are numerous interpretations, numerous Explanations of what the water and the blood can be and, and what, why would there be so many interpretations? Well, it's because firstly, water is used throughout Scripture. Water is found all over Scripture and the references to it, it can be literal. For example, the, the Jordan River separating or it could be symbolic. Water sometimes represents affliction. And it's the same with blood. The references to blood can be literal. For example, in a battle, blood is shed. But also symbolic. The Bible says that we were all made of one blood. Describing how the Christian view is that there are no separate races, but just one human race. We all have, as it were, the same blood. There are also scriptures where... Water and blood are used in the same place. So for example in Revelation we see the water in the sea being turned to blood. And then we can have combinations of any reference to water. Combined with any reference to blood. So if maybe someone could come up with Maybe a thousand different explanations of what the wars and the blood is. You could combine the two and say, right, the wars and the blood means chaos and war and so on. You can go on forever. So we need to narrow this down. Straight away we can discard most of those combinations. We can strip away 90% of them then maybe we could delve into some commentaries and get ourselves up to speed on the church's thinking for the past 2,000 years. And then perhaps most importantly, we can look at context. So we have those words, water and blood, but they are part of a sentence. And that sentence is part of a verse. The verse itself is part of chapter, which is part of the book of, of 1 John, you can say that itself is a part of the writings of John, his gospel and his apocalypse. And then of course, if you step right back, you're reminded that the largest context of all is the word of God as a whole. And so what do we do? Well, we try to consider the scope of this letter. We've said that the the letter is, it's all about Jesus, and it's against heresy. Principally, this heresy of Corinthus, the heresy of docetism, that Jesus and Christ are two separate people. Now let's look at the train of thought as well. Look in verse 8 and 11. It says, There are three that bear witness the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Three witnesses. And what is their testimony? What are they witnessing about? Two things found in verse 11. Firstly, eternal life. Secondly, that that eternal life is found only through the Son of God. Jesus Christ. Therefore, it leads us to say that the water and the blood testimony must in some way endorse the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And this leads us towards one interpretation that is superior to the others. That is, that the water refers to Jesus Christ's baptism. And that the blood refers to his death. Therefore, it is not just by baptism that he fulfilled his mission. The death was part of it. And Corinthus was wrong. Christ did not depart from Jesus at Calvary and leave him to his fate. There was no such thing as two separate people. It is the one person who died on that cross. It was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in flesh. No doubt Top Lady agrees with this. He penned Rock of Ages and said this Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side, which flowed, be of sin, the double cure. Cleaned me, sorry, save me from its guilt and power. The blood removing our guilt, and the water representing the spirit and his cleansing, sanctifying effect on us as believers. So the three witnesses then the spirit, the water, and the blood. For the spirit, have a look at John 15 26. John, writing in his 15th chapter of his gospel, verse 26, says, But when the Comforter is come, it's the Spirit, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And then the other two witnesses, the events surrounding the baptism, Look at Matthew three and verses sixteen and seventeen, referring to the witness of the water it says And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straight away out of the water, and lo the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And then for the blood. We can have a look at Matthew 27. Because in Matthew 27. And verse 50. Says Jesus when he had cried again. With a loud voice. Yielded up the ghost. And behold the veil of the temple. Was rent in twain. From the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake. And the rocks rent. And the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints. Which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done they feared greatly saying truly this was the Son of God. We have there then three witnesses fulfilling that Requirement from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy when we are told that at the mouth of two witnesses, or even better, at the mouth of three witnesses shall a matter be established. Verse 9 says, Never mind the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. And so, yes, we have people confessing Jesus is the Son of God, but God himself witnesses. He's at his baptism. He's there. Sending tremors throughout Jerusalem. After the death of Jesus. The sort of aftershocks. From that great earthquake. That the father sent into the soul of Jesus. God's witness is greater. And what are these three things testifying about? They are testifying. That we. God's people. Have eternal life, just like that thief on the cross who was told of his future in paradise. We too have the very, very same promise of an everlasting, glorious, Edenic paradise of God. Job tells us of his hope. He knew that although he would die and just be eaten by worms. Nevertheless, there was a day coming when he would see his Redeemer. He would stand on his own two feet in his new flesh and see God face to face. What else is being testified about? Not just that we have eternal life, but this immeasurable gift is only gained through Jesus Christ, God's Son. It tells us, doesn't it, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, It says, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. If a man or woman wants to escape God's terrible judgment at the return of Jesus Christ, it must be through Jesus Christ himself. No one else can help them. No one else can help them. Verse 12, friends. He that has the Son has life. Do you have the Son? Do you have the Son? If you do, eternal life is guaranteed. It is guaranteed. I know that, especially at this time, in these strange times we live in, where this god sent virus is spreading out all over the world and people are fearful and some believers are fearful they're fearful of death and we might like to think that they are fearful of the process of death we might like to think that they're fearful of leaving others behind But that they really want to be with Jesus. I suspect, sadly, that in some cases it's simply a lack of faith. If you have very little faith, then you will have very little faith that you will live again. You will maybe believe it as a as a as a faint hope, but not look forward to the world to come like it was the <laughs> like you would the holiday of a lifetime, looking forward to it, can't wait for it to happen. Ah, faith is what we need, I pray. I pray for you all that you would have that faith that would increase and increase. And to the point that it is what is so commonly a weak faith would become an absolute certainty in our minds and in the minds of all believers. A certainty we might have this such faith in that the world to come was a reality just ahead of us. That we will have less love of this world. That we will have more urgency in bearing witness. That we would have more determination to get along with the co-heirs of eternal life, our brothers and sisters, that we would have greater joy at the prospect of a sinless future and utter consecration in the service of the one who purchased this all for you, the beautiful Lord Jesus Christ. As I was preparing this message, I was confronted with the remembrance of other references to water and blood. And I pursued this and I became constrained to to share some of these thoughts with you, whether that constraint was of the spirit or of the flesh. Well, I have to just be confident that it was of the spirit and so I wanted to, just for your consideration just as an appendix to the message today I want you to think about where water and blood is either mentioned or implied in the life of Jesus and I want us to consider what this tells us about his humanity not just his divinity We have Jesus born into this world in the normal way. It says in Galatians chapter four and verse four. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Then in His life we see, we see Him, we find Him in Luke twenty-two and verse forty-one. In Gethsemane, he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So we see him in toil and travail in his life. And then we see Jesus Christ's death. You can read a small section from John 19 and verse 30. It says, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Verse 32 Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. So we see then it was a proper death. It was most certainly a proper death. What is the connection here? Well, these three things should remind you of the connection Jesus had with Adam, because Adam, in in his fall, made it the destiny of all his descendants after him to be born into this world through a painful process of childbirth. And every one of us come into this world covered in blood and water, so we see it was a a completely normal birth so he identifies himself as coming from the line of Adam and then in Jesus life we see him in such inward turmoil, travail of soul a toil that it harks back to that pronouncement by God that Adam would travail during his life and he would bring forth food by the sweat of his brow and so sweat became the the symbol of that toil that was part of the fall and sure Jesus worked in his ministry that counted as work but this, this turmoil, this travail that he experienced in Gethsemane here as he stood on the edge of the furnace of God's anger. It was here that he took upon himself all the sins of all his people and was truly made to be sin for us. And it is in that unimaginable turmoil that he sweats to show the travail of his soul which is to culminate on a cross. And finally, it was also the destiny of Adam's descendants that their lives would end. That after a life of toil, their bodies would deteriorate until they came to a point where they could no longer function. Their lives would end and they would go into the grave grave So we see there Jesus Christ in some inexplicable way Jesus Christ the son of God in the flesh dying and so in these three ways we see connections with Adam and with the results of the fall the water and the blood and his birth, in his life and in his death and it shows us that yes he was the divine Son of God, but he was also a real human. Friends, do you believe this evidence today? Do you believe the threefold evidence on earth about Jesus Christ and the eternal life that he gives? Then, if you do, then praise God. Praise God for it. To do otherwise would be to call God a liar. It says in verse 10. But as for us who believe, let us never, never stop praising God because of the great gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Amen.